Watch this. Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am Tom Mills and today I'm joined by Sam Williams. Hello, Tom. And special guest, managing director of Rocket Yard Sports, Daryl Evans. Daryl, nice to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to getting under the hood with you fellas today. That sounds really bad, but I'm happy to get under the hood of the business of <laughs> that golf. sounds really good, actually. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, just to give our listeners a bit of a background into you, Daryl, I know previously you've worked with companies such as Firestart and TaylorMade, but if you could just give us a brief outline on who you are, what you've done, and, and what's brought you here today. Yeah, sure. I probably, uh, I probably shouldn't really be doing what I'm doing. I mean, I, I grew up in South Africa, <laughs> arguably wrong side of the tracks. My dad definitely would have wanted me to be working in a factory. I probably would have ended up robbing cars for a living, but I somehow managed to work my way up to the cutting edge of the golf industry. Uh, you look like you'd be a good, good sort of, you know, Grand Theft Auto kind of character, actually, there, Daryl. It's a good it? thing this is a podcast, right? Because, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a small, bald man with a little bit too gruffly facial hair, too much gruffly facial hair at the moment. So I probably look a bit hard as nails, but the truth is I'm a small guy with a big art. <laughs> we'll believe you. Yeah. So, so what got you into golf then? Uh, well, my father played golf, so I ended up playing a little bit of golf with my dad. And then um, when I moved to the UK, so I moved over here when I was 19, I, I happened to work in a pro shop and the pro there thought that I was semi-decent at golf, even though I wasn't very good at all. And uh, he thought, oh, you know, you should become an assistant pro. And then I ended up landing a job up at the Belfry as an assistant pro. And uh, that basically set me on the path to where I ended up today. And um I'll kind of fill in a couple of gaps without dwelling too much on it. But from my time at the Belfry and doing my PGA training, I graduated quite highly for my training. So I finished second in the UK and Ireland. And when you're kind of in that sort of top five, six, seven, you get quite a lot of job offers around the world. And I ended Mm. up taking a job out in Dubai, which is where I really came onto the tailor-made scene, which I only found out about a couple of years later or a few years later. And I helped install a tailor-made performance center out there at the Four Seasons Resort at the time, which is Albadia Golf Resort. And I came back to the UK, set up my own business, uh, basically doing golf trips with golf pros abroad. Uh, That was going quite well. Uh, got scammed out of some money, shit myself a little bit, thought, oh, I'm a bit mm. out of my depth here. So sold that and then bought into a golf academy instead. That was going really well. I had to sell that a little bit early because my dad wasn't very well in South Africa. So sold that, came back for the best for a wedding. Um, in fact, with one of your current guests uh, or one of your other guests, Chris Trott. <laughs> oh, Trotter, yeah, of course, yeah. So you guys go back. we go back a long way from Belfry days and I, there was two best men for his wedding and the other best man was prepared to read out my speech uh, if I wasn't going to make it because of my, my dad not making it, so to speak, in South Africa. So in the speech, I then said, oh, listen, you know, hey, Badge, I just want to say thanks so much for volunteering to, to read out my speech if I couldn't be here. And just by saying that, freaking every guest after that speech just came up to me and said, what did you mean by that? And obviously, it's quite emotional times. Yeah. So it wasn't very easy. So all I ended up doing was just drinking more and more and more beer, which was great. And uh, <laughs> I, stood, <laughs> I was standing at the bar, and there's this guy, and he's asking me all of these really random questions about celebrities and golf pros and do I know any coaches. And my then fiancé, now wife, she comes over and says, oh, what are you guys talking about? And, and he says, he says uh, 
well, I'm just interviewing young Daryl over here. So I looked at him and I said, who the fuck are you? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, uh, my name, my name in his Irish accent, my name is Ian Watson. I think you should come in and see me. And uh, he worked at TaylorMade as a sports marketing director. And that set me on the pathway to working with the best players in the world. And uh, oh. I was very lucky and had a slam very lucky to be exposed to some of the best players in the world. Uh, I've been to some of the best places in the world, the things I've seen, the things I've done, the cultures I've experienced. Um, and really the valuable part for me is the business end. And that's the bit that I was always interested in. You know, it's nice to be able to stand out on the range and help out Dustin Johnson with his driver or, you know, speak to his management team about this, that, on the next thing about not necessarily about him, but other players and whatever it might be. But I was always fascinated by the business end of it. So the contracts, how mm. the sponsorship and the marketing were interlinked, how they should be used and how to really stimulate that along. So when it came time for me to leave TaylorMade, I needed to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my career because, you know, it's great working at TaylorMade and the exposure you get. And, you know, it was a wonderful time. There's no doubt it's been the highlight of my career, um, my time at TaylorMade. But in order for me to develop and grow myself, I needed to, to expand, I suppose. So I went to go and work for a management company for a year uh, to figure out what I did and didn't already know. And then through that experience, met the right people at the right time, which allowed us to set up Rocket Yard Sports just a few years ago. And uh, we've gone from strength to strength year after year, uh, even in a pandemic, which is freaking surprising sometimes. <laughs> and you, you're representing a pretty, um, a fairly broad spectrum in terms of athletes at the moment, aren't you, Daryl? But for our, for our listeners who, and I think one of those maybe if you're in sports marketing inside, it probably all makes sense. To the, to the naked eye looking inwards, it maybe looks like everyone's an agent. So being deliberately pr provocative for you here, but, you know, kind of your, which players do you manage, um, mm -hmm. so to speak? How does that nature work? Like you talk about Rocket Yard. How does that differ from, from being like a, a typical, you know, sports yeah. agent for want of a better term? I think that's a good question because, you know, although we do represent talent um, and we represent them commercially, which I'll expand on in a second, uh, we are a sports marketing and a sponsorship agency. And we need to be able to look at the business of sport from a totally aerial view. So the people that are connected to the money, if you think about it from a business, is the rights holder. So let's call that a golf tour, like the European tour. It's the brands. So let's say that's a BMW or a Rolex or people that invest in those tours. And there's the players themselves. So if you have all three within your, um, I guess, portfolio, you will have the best possible view in terms of how to connect the dots from a business and commercial point of view. So the players that we represent, now we're going to be very specific about the players that we sign. We've, we've turned down about 40 players already in the last three years, just because they need to highlight our brand in the right way. They need to fit our model the right way because we are not managers. We're more likely to be agents. So um, we don't book travel. We don't do passports. You know, we don't do the operational side of, of our players' lifestyles, if you like. We mm. totally focus on the commercial aspects, which is contract negotiation, stimulating new opportunities, new partnerships, new relationships. That's the area of focus that we do because that means we would do the same thing for the brands. We do the same thing for the rights holders we work with. It's all very, very, very consistent. So is that something that the players come to you, um, some of the players you turn down, and they would expect that essentially that, that you would act as APA 
and sort their lives out. And they just, is that what they're kind of, some of these players are expecting when they come to a, to a, a marketing agency like yourself? Some do. Yes. Um, I think it's, you know, there are management companies out there. That's their job. You know, that's what they do. They, they handhold the players. They fetch them their cups of coffee out in the driving range. You know, they're always there for every press conference or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, for some players, that's a need, you know, and that's yeah. great for some players. Um, but that's just not where we think the direction of travel that this is going to go in the future of sports marketing and management. Think about it. The phone is change the world. No doubt about it. When you talk about innovation in, in the world, the, the smartphone is that key device. And as more and more and more apps become available, the, more, uh, the, the less need there is for some of those services from a management company. That's just mm. how I see this. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a ton of management companies that are going to go, oh, you can't say that, you can't do that. Da, 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 da. But that's just what I believe personally. And I've set up my business in a way that allows for that to happen. So if the player wants to book his own flights and he's got his Emirates Airlines app, great. If he wants to do his passports, great. If he wants to sort out his car insurance, you know, we've got McLaren Sport. We can put you in touch with those guys. And, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, there's a, there's, a, there's a route for that, which does not require 24-hour service, you know, hand-holding. So what you're saying there, I think, Daryl, is, you know, kind of you want to have a broad range of athletes because people, those athletes will fit the you know, narrative for different brands differently. Right. So you, so like you wouldn't necessarily want 20 Carly booths or you wouldn't want, you know, 15 Adrian Otegis. You, what you want to have is one of each because they each represent an ability to, to be a, you know, to use your term, I guess, a kind of flag bearer for, for, yeah. for those, for those individual companies. Right. hundred percent. So because we're, we're so connected to the marketing side, if we have five players that are the same, Imagine what that's like when you go into a conversation with a sponsor and you say, hey, look, you know, we've got these five players. Which one would you like? That's not a mm. great pitch, is it? So we need to be able to go in and strongly demonstrate the unique audiences of each of those athletes so that we can then provide multiple solutions. If that brand picks them all, great. If they pick one or two, great, whatever. It has to, it has to fit the business. It doesn't fit the player. It fits the business. And that's how sponsorship works. Um, so... You're totally right. You know, we, we only want to have one Carly Booth. There is only one Carly Booth. You know, we only want to have one Adrian Otegi. We only want to have one Chris Ryan, one Andy Wilson. All of these guys, Sean Murphy's, they're all specific in what kind of solution we would be able to present to a brand. Is that where where age where sports sports management's gone wrong then in the past then? So I'm not I'm not saying I want you to to, to bag kind of competition or you know other businesses no. out there, but is that is that kind of something that's happened over time? Has it just become I don't know of different larger firms just become a bit homogenized in terms of the players they're recruiting? Yeah, I, I think look if you rewind the clock. Clock 15, I said clock then, as if we were talking about Liverpool Football Club then. I mean clock. Uh, but uh, if you rewind the clock 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago, the management company, you needed a management company because they, they knew everybody on a personal level that would get you to the right places. But in that space of time, and again, the smartphone and the apps, th those connections and the, and the route to those connections is getting shorter and shorter all the time. So that's less of a need. So at my time working at TaylorMade and working with all the players that we worked with at the time, there's a play, players only have one problem with their management company, and that's it. Where is my deals? Where are my sponsorship opportunities? So that's the problem we have to go out and solve. Me fetching you a cup of coffee is not solving your problem for thirst. 
I, I, you know, you can fetch it yourself <laughs> down the end of the driving range. You know, that's how that works. Whereas for me, it's very, very difficult to attract partners, especially in the current climate with the pandemic. So would you rather me fetch you a cup of coffee or would you rather me be on the phone trying to uh, arrange a sponsorship opportunity for you? Most players are going to say the latter, aren't they? So the mm. problem we're solving is to focus solely and in a more dedicated fashion that particular route. So if we rewind slightly and you, and you say that you represent more than just the players and you've got sort of the tours and the brands and the players and they all sit in, in this umbrella of, of things that you represent, is, is your mission to to connect people within the things you represent or is it to understand the connections so you can do it better? Well, the better we understand the connections, the deeper our relationships will go. So that means when we're problem solving for these brands, players or rights holders, we're better positioned to be able to give them something that we know that they will need. You see, I'm going to kind of give you something really tangible here, which is more related to how players go about getting their own sponsorship deals. And this would be guys that are maybe developing. So young guys who are just starting out in their career. And I'll kind of show you what the example would be uh, by telling you this sort of narrative. If you're a young guy, you know, you're 22 years old, you just turned pro and you need some cash now because you've got to pay for some entry fees for the first time because England aren't there to pay for them for you. Um, you know, you've actually got to go out and do it on your own, but you've got golf lessons to pay for. You've got your physio, you've got your flights, you've got this, da, 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 da. So what most of them do, they go down the golf club and they say they go and find the wealthiest guy at the golf club <laughs> and they say to them, hey, Billy Big Boy, um, <laughs> so I'd like to talk to you about helping me out. Uh, you know, I've got this, um, I'm a, you know, I'm the best player in the club and I really want to live out my dream because I'm passionate about my dreams. And, you know, you could really be with me along this journey. And, uh, you know, I just need some help paying for my, you know, golf lessons and some entry fees. I mean, that's just it's a bit of a weak sale when you hear it back, weak actually. Yeah. yeah. Now if you flip that on its head and you say, you, you, you teach these young guys. So we do this with an index. We have this like player index, which helps highlight to them how they can be sponsorship ready. And within that, you know, they've got to be learning about how to grow their social audience, how to develop a network with it, you know, personal network, how to uh, develop a mailing list, you know, the power, the usefulness rather of a website, uh, their time, uh, you know, how they can use sampling opportunities to allow new sponsors into their environment so that their, that their network can test out those products. You know, if you listen to everything that I've said so far, the one thing that I haven't said yet is logo placement. Mm-hmm. Now, what players think and a lot of brands think is that sponsorship is logo placement. And that is just not even remotely close to the ballpark there. Um, you're not even close when you're thinking on, on that framework. So with everything that I've said there now, imagine I'm the player and I go back in and say, Hey, Billy, big boy, I want to talk to you about a sponsorship opportunity. And they're going to go, right, here we go. Another charity case. And you then say, okay, I've got an audience of X. This is the demographic. This is the age range. This is what their household income is. This is how many cars they drive. This is how what percentage will be changing their car insurance in the next 18 months. You're an insurance guy. I think this is a really, really good fit for you. Would you like to work with me in order to access my audience so that we can open you up to make new business? And by the way, the price of entry is five grand. That's a much more compelling sell than saying, hey, mate, can you help me out for some golf lessons? You've flipped, I mean? it, you've flipped it to a partnership from being what was essentially a favor-based thing before, haven't you? And it's yeah. weird because I think, you know, 
I don't know, maybe we all look at these things with hindsight and it's easier, but you know, when you're 22, the world never seems that straightforward, does it? And you just think, you know, you're just more likely to follow the route of what the other boys that, you know, you're playing regional golf would do, but you know, it's such a clear and obvious example when you say it out loud and yet, you know, 99% of players will go about it in the way you first articulated. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, I personally think that it's mental, but I, I also understand because it's like you said, it's a bit like, you know, um, you, you have an Apple phone, your next phone is going to be an Apple phone. You kind of get into the, mm-hmm. into the lane. You never come out of the lane. So you never get the right exposure to understand how to pitch yourself. You know, too many players go on what their performances are, but actually, you know, the way that we would do it, and I'll give you a really good example when we start talking to brands, especially when it comes to talent or even rights holders, you know, we'll go to the brand, we'll learn everything that we need to learn about what their marketing objectives are, what their commercial needs are, et cetera, et cetera. We then go in and we then say, okay, look, we're working with a few audiences here and this is the audience data and we kind of go through it all. And then, and then they say, so whose audience is this? Oh, this happens to be Carly Booth's audience or this happens to be Sean Murphy's audience. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah, great. So we remove the emotional connection to it and we make it business because this is business, really. Mm. It's not, it's okay. We, we, the one great thing about sport is that it is an emotional thing and that's a wonderful thing. We should never lose that. But I think when you're making these decisions where you're looking to spend tens or hundreds or millions of that pounds, you, you need to, you need to make sure that you're making calculated business decisions and doing it on a whim is never going to be effective for anybody. It needs to be quite smartly calculated. Um, I've got a question that you may not be able to answer, but it's a difficult, it's gone through my head before. So I'll ask it anyway. If we go back to your previous example with um, Billy Big Stuff and, and the guy who wants, who runs an insurance company. Billy um, Big Boy. Billy Big Billy Boy. Billy Big Boy. I do apologize. <laughs> get, it, get it right. Because yeah, you're never going to get five grand off Billy yeah. if you call him Billy Big yeah. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. you're off to a bad start already. <laughs> the question I've got, I suppose, is there's a player that's come and, 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 negotiated a contract with an insurance company and say for argument's sake he gets five thousand pounds and that's what he's negotiated and say it's a one-year deal um how do you as a as a management company uh show that the talent has provided value that's a great question another this is this is a problem that we are currently trying to solve um so the key stat here is that seven out of every 10 brands that invest in talent sponsorship want to end the contract early. That's mind-blowing, really? right? So why is it the first place? place? Is that because the contracts well, are too mad. long? Or? No, it's because it's underserviced um, so by both sides. So both sides don't understand the sponsorship. So how, what sponsorship is in my world? Sponsorship is the gateway to the audience. What you have to do once you're through the gate is you have to market to the audience is how this works. So what brands will do is they will spend – Let's use your example. They've spent five grand. Actually, I'm going to give you a real strong, tangible example. A friend of mine who, when he was a small boy, went to a Formula One track. And this was at a time when Marlborough sponsored the McLaren Formula One team. And he's walked into the garage with his dad. And the Marlborough guy is giving the McLaren guy a massive, massive bollock in for something. And he is absolutely ripping through him. And um, he says to the McLaren guy, the Marlborough guy says this, he says, I am spending a million dollars a year with you for all this shit, whatever he was moaning about. And the boy then startled says a million dollars. Oh my God, so much money. And he turns <laughs> to the boy and he says, a million is nothing compared to the 10 million I'm spending activating this agreement. And that's the problem. 
So a lot of brands who are trying to move from advertiser to sponsor, they will give that player five grand, 10 grand, 100 grand, whatever it is, and they'll put it all on the player to do everything. They don't understand that they've just paid for the entrance, the, the, the doorway. It's an entrance fee. That's what they paid for. What the brand now has to do is stimulate that agreement with normal, traditional marketing means in order to stimulate that audience to attract new customers. So that's where the partnership really comes in. Sponsorship is the price of entry. Marketing is the way that you stimulate that audience. So what you've got to do at the end of a season or realistically on a quarterly basis, when you're in these agreements, you should really be trying to put out some um, reports on activity to prove that your player has been doing what's been required of them in order to activate those agreements. What we try and do is we try and speak to all of our um, partners and sponsors and whoever they may be, may be at least on a monthly basis. You know, we've got to be on real good personal terms here so that when we have these calls and discussions, we are talking about what kind of activations we can do for the following month. You know, what's your plan? Are you releasing a new product in September? Right? What kind of campaigns can we do around there that we can help stimulate you know, Sean Murphy's audience or Carly Booth's audience or whatever it might be. And that's how you got to go about it. Most agencies, and no, hang on, I, I nearly said something really bad there. Um, what some agencies will do is uh, they won't, you know, they'll do the contract in the beginning of the year and those brands won't hear from them till the end of the year. Those mm. contracts are unlikely to be renewed. And that's the seven out of 10. What we need to do is be the three out of 10 and for us, grow us to the, to the 10 out of 10. That's where you get that continuum, isn't it? Because, you know, when you're saying, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass here, you know, just for the sake of it, but where you, where you okay. say the, <laughs> no, but you kind of say, you know, your, your primary client here is the, is the, is the business that's using you to market their product, whatever that product might be. And, you know, you can see how in a, in a simple world, the agent who's getting the coffee down on the range, they see their client as the player. So when the, when, when the insurance guy or the Marlboro guy comes up and says, here's a million bucks, it's like, brilliant, there's a million bucks. Thanks for that. We'll catch up again in a year's time when I need another million or hopefully a million and a half. And like you say, you haven't activated it. And you can see that because and it's probably back to what you were saying earlier about logo placements. It's like, you know, okay, I wear the product. It's on my, it's on my badge. There we go. On to the next thing. You know, been in the position you're in when when you look around who do you see that does that kind of activation piece really well and i'm not going to let you use one of your own examples because i've already no, blown too much smoke I've got a great one. there <laughs> but, you know where you see it and you're like yeah they get it what yeah well a friend of mine um i suppose in some ways he's a bit of a mentor really a guy called eric mishkoff uh he represents uh, sergio garcia now sergio for me is the pinnacle of excellence when it comes to understanding the value to sponsors. So he's been working with Omega and Adidas for more than 20 years. That's proper sponsorship. That's partnerships like to the highest level because it's very difficult to attract new sponsors. So what you need to do is develop the relationship with the ones you've got because it's much better to have long-term partners than ones that keep changing year after year. So I think how Eric and Sergio have done that and worked that relationship, and obviously they're all friends, you know, the way they, they, they have a relationship that's beyond the scope of the agreement. But, you know, Omega's purpose is to access Garcia's audience, and that's how this works. Um, but their relationship is so intertwined and so deep, it's unlikely that it'll ever break. And that's, that's where uh, it'll always win in that sense. So is it in terms of a brand? I mean... <sighs> It's a, it, I know this is a really difficult question to answer, but are they expecting to see 
tangible increase in profit because of that sponsorship? Or are they looking, you know, they're just thinking if we break even, that's okay. Or are they just thinking this is a good thing to be on board with? I think every company will have a different, um, a different metric for their ROI. Uh, and it, sometimes it's going to depend on the, the size, the quality of the audience, or perhaps the personality to a level of the talent and how interactive they are. Um, you know, when people talk about sponsorship, brand awareness is a very, very, it's like one of the first things that usually gets mentioned. And it, because sponsorship is heavily involved in, in brand awareness, you know, there's a reason why. Uh, you know, the football teams have logo placement on the front of those shirts is because logo placement is a, a value add, I suppose. And there is uh, an ROI that you can measure. So, you know, for example, if you advertise in today's Golfer magazine, I'm probably going to get these numbers wrong, but you'll see my point. Um, you advertise in today's Golfer magazine for a one, a one page A4 for two and a half grand, for example, and the circulation is 50,000 people. Well, if I spent two and a half thousand pounds on social media advertising, my reach would be significantly more than 50,000 mm. people. And I could possibly be even really, really be even more targeted through social media to attract mm. the ones that are in the market to buy my product. So sponsorship and logo placement has a place in order to be able to influence people's perception. I'm actually reading a book about this at the moment and how, um, uh, there's a phrase, I can't remember what the phrase is. I wish I could just tell you now if the book is next to me, I'll be able to tell you. But uh, it's basically about reinforcing that message regularly and a lot. So like Rolex, for example, believe in something called tsunami marketing. And it's very, it's kind of very smart. All they want to do is be seen as often as possible. That's it. So it doesn't matter if, if their logo is small or big. You know, they've got their clocks on every tee or on the tennis courts or they, they, they're everywhere. You see them all the time. You know, there's, no, there's nothing on very that. Very subliminal. Very, very subliminal. But what people then, over time, they then associate Rolex as premium. They associate mm -hmm. Rolex, all oh, right, yeah, golf and tennis. You know, those are exclu exclusive sort of high net worth kind of sports um, to be associated with. And that's how they'll position themselves. Um, and it's kind of smart when you think about it. But brand awareness is, is you, and you can measure that down to monetary value because you can say, well, if I spend two and a half grand in advertising on, in a magazine, uh, and I wanted to reach 50,000 people. If I reach 50,000 people online and it cost me a thousand pounds, then your ROI, I suppose, is another one and a half grand yeah. on top, right? If you see the maths there. But there are other tangible ways. So you can do sampling opportunities, for example. This is something that BMW do really well at, the, at, at Wentworth. So when you go into the tented village, you can sample the cars, you can get inside, you can touch, you can feel, you can book test drives. Uh, you can do everything with the cars and they'll do promotional offers that week to encourage sales. And they will definitely be selling cars that week. Absolutely. Mm. No doubt about it. Amongst the players as well, they'll have player VIP deals. And I've benefited from a couple of those over the years as well. You know, they'll do these amazing deals that week and you pick up a BMW. Like it's brilliant. It's mm. really good. Mm. That, that's where the sponsorships really come in. You know, they have access to the audience. Great. I didn't see, I didn't see, um, think of another i didn't see ferrari there so no one was buying any ferraris but bmw paid the price of entry via sponsorship in order to have that sampling opportunity in front of all those people that week mm. to sell more cars um and so then they activate it well yeah exactly you you yeah. talk about social media a bit there as well so we're going to obviously touch on this but 
the players and their social media presence seems to be quite important because they seem to do a lot. Even players who, you know, fundamentally don't need to. There's a lot of people and, and you know, the reach they have is huge. And, you know, we've also had people sort of approach us randomly through the sort of various different dark channels that exist out there that assist people with social media. And by the way, we have no involvement with those people. But they say <laughs> that they support, you know, some serious players that sit on, you know, top level tours. And you think, is it really that important that a professional golfer elevates their social media presence? You think that can't be right. Like surely, surely it can't be that important, but clearly that's a massive asset in today's game for players. Well, if you think about it, like, a, like, a, like I said earlier, sponsorship is about accessing an audience. If you haven't got one, it's pretty hard to attract a brand for sponsorship. That's mm. basically where you're at. Right. So the more cultivated and the more refined your, your, uh, social media is and the more engaged your audience is the more likely you are to attract sponsorship this is one of the key things about influencers that i find super fascinating so you think about some of these tour players that are earning significant amounts of money like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth some of them into the millions potentially and, and i'm not talking about i'm talking about players probably outside the top 50 here mm-hmm. um and then you then compare that to a social influencer, some top social influence. Obviously, there's some good ones out there. You've got Rick Shields, you know, me and Mike Golf, uh, Chris Ryan, a client of ours. You know, these guys are the top social influencers in the world who are commanding big audiences of 400,000 people up to, you know, I, I know Rick Shields is well over a million now, I believe. Um, you know, that's a super, super highly engaged audience that never declines. It just keeps growing. So if you're a brand, this is what I think, think in my logic right if you're a brand and you want to sponsor someone and there are players on the tour that you can sponsor you can never guarantee the engagement of the audience if your player wins oh my god that's electric the roi of that is just phenomenal you know and Mm. and we've certainly experienced that a lot over the years and it's 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 amazing when that happens but you're almost gambling on that you you know you're, you're spending your money and you're hoping that that happens and then that player comes through fantastic roi everyone loves it it's amazing da 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 that's great Social influencers can be super powerful and consistent because their audience always grows. They can sit down and open up a negotiation with a brand and say to them, look, I'm going to get, I'm going to do a three series campaign for you because I believe in your product. I like what you're doing and I'm going to guarantee you 30,000 views per video. And they say, all right, you can guarantee that. Yeah, I can guarantee. And if I don't get there, I'll do another video. Or what we'll do is we'll do this on a pro rata agreement where whatever view it is, you just pay me less. And they go, all right, okay, yeah, that'll work. That is super effective. So that's why social media is key. Now, imagine if you're a tour player and you have a big social audience, like Carly Booth is that person. So if she goes out and wins, freaking the world lights up. If she does something on social media, the world is still still on fire. It's great. Mm. You know, she's winning Mm. all the time in that sense. And that's where the power of social in sports sponsorship is really key. However, what I hear a lot of from players, uh, yeah, I don't really want to work on all that. You know, I'm here to play golf. You know, I've got a concert on my golf, my golf, my golf, my golf. Yeah, no problem at all, mate. I absolutely totally understand that. And I highly respect that. Just accept that you're probably not going to get as big as sponsorship deals. That's okay. Just as so long mm. as you know that, it's all golden. And that's the way that it will work. And what's happening with the pandemic is that it's magnifying that. It's making really? the brands look at social media more than they've ever looked at it before. Do you find um, there is a difference between the deals that you can broker for players that have 
there are clearly players that have a managed social media that they don't really have anything to do with. And then there's players that do it themselves. Um, is that, does, does that change the way that you can broker deals or, or does it not really matter? It's just subscriber numbers. Um, well, the, the authenticity of the content that goes out to the channel is very important to be fair. It has to be a natural fit. It has to, you know, it has to reflect the person. You know, we turned down quite a few deals, to be fair, with the likes of, say, Carly or, or Chris in particular because of their social audiences, uh, because they're products that, A, they might not believe in, uh, and, uh, B, they might be products that we can't authentically and naturally put into their channels either. Mm. You know, it, it doesn't work. Um, like Carly Booth is a good example. How could you, you know, how could we get McDonald's to sponsor her? Because she doesn't eat unhealthy. She eats healthily. You know, and, and she, that's the lifestyle that she leads. She can't eat a McDonald's burger um, because it doesn't, it's not conducive to her audience. It's not conducive to her personality. It's not a logical fit. But if mm. it was, um, I don't know, like a protein or a grenade, a protein bar or, or whatever, whatever it might be, that's a lot more authentic because those are products she uses. It's, it's what she requires to run her life. So mm. the content that she'll put out will be a lot more natural as a result of that. Mm. But managed accounts, going to your point about managed accounts and when the players do it themselves, you know, I understand why management companies would run the players' accounts. I really totally understand that, and especially with players that are underusing their social and they need some help and support. But it is always better if the player does it themselves. The authenticity, again, just shines through. It's, it's mm. Often it's quite clear to see. So we're quite active at trying to get our players to do it on them, by themselves as much as possible, and we'll guide them on certain things and give them ideas on certain things but it really needs to flow from what they feel is natural to them. There was a, there was quite a funny thing. It was not funny at all, but um, it was, it was coming out on Twitter. I remember I saw when the, when the, the riots were happening in America, um, there was a player that put out a photo, like, Oh, really psyched about the Hawaii open tomorrow or something, which was obviously like a timed scheduled post. And it was so incongruent with everything <laughs> that was going on. And I think, uh, yeah, like the Twitter sphere just kind of took it apart as being, you know, ridiculous, but that's yeah. the, you see it, that, you see it, it, don't you like, sorry to cut in Tom, but you like, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about it. You know, we kind of take dead aim on it and call it naked commercialism. And, I, I think the epitome of that when I watch professional golf is that A on risk reward hole. I don't see, you know, now they internally would think that there is a, there's a synergy around risk and reward in the nature of their business. And they think they've struck gold by, by doing it. I think the, the fan that sits at home looks at that and just thinks this is just the, it is the epitome of, of naked commercialism. It's an mm. ad that needs to be run, you know, throughout. It doesn't even seem particularly relevant to what I'm watching throughout the season. I'd even probably lump something like, you know, you know FedEx, that's just stick it. That's, that's, that's like your tsunami marketing, isn't it? It's just like, we're going to strike a contract. We're going to put as much money in people's hands as possible. And we just want you to kind of stuff it down the audience's throat as much as they can take. And it's, it's funny yeah. hearing you talk about how it works with partnerships and, you know, kind of trying to look at things where, it just fits in a bit more organically. Um, yeah. I don't even think there's a question kind of within there. It's just a, just more of an well, observation. I think, yeah, I think, you know, your FedEx example there as well. And some of the, you know, wh when you start getting into the sponsorship for rights holders like that, you know, the tours, et cetera, or, or individual events, you know, that you will see things like this leaderboard is sponsored by, or, you know, this mm. water station is sponsored by whatever, you know, th those things, you know, well, one, there's a cost-saving exercise to the rights holder for having those there, for sure. But, but equally, some of those brands that want to go, that yeah, they'll do that for a brand awareness, 
But what they might be trying to do is actually get access to the other brands. So in the hospitality village or, you know, in that sort of community, in the pro-ams or whatever it might be, they're trying to infiltrate uh, the key people at other companies so they can open up dialogue and therefore do business on a B2B basis as right. well as to a, a B2C basis. So sometimes sponsorship isn't always about ramming down the logo placement or an ad down people's throats, although for some brands that's definitely there. <laughs> um, sometimes you know, some of the big brands are really trying to associate themselves with different scenarios. There's a biggish insurance company that we do a little bit of, uh, well, I guess we've been talking to for quite some time now, and they only really have one goal. They're quite happy to do a lot of different types of sponsorship, but they have one goal, one objective, and that is wherever they go, they have to take over all of the insurance policies of that rights holder. That's it. So they're happy to spend, but we need that all of that. And if we don't have all of it, then we're not going to be involved in the sponsorship opportunity. So mm. that's it. Going back to the ROI question, that's where it comes into play. So they'll win because they'll win long-term contracts and in insurance policies, but they'll also win because they're getting the brand awareness of their insurance business, you know, branded up everywhere and whatever gets included in that kind of arrangement. Um, so there's a bit that's more. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting mm. take. Just just flipping it over and looking at the kind of player stuff before we um, before we started recording, we were chatting, and you know, I'm just curious, how much is the you know tour player at whatever level? Because their their earnings you know vary right enormously. Mm. In fact, how much is the tour player dependent on their their endorsements and sponsorship programs versus you know. Yeah, how well they play that season for for mm. the standard of living. Like it, that's quite hard. Again, as the outside looking in, it's like I can see how much a player's earning. That's really transparent. I get to look at that every weekend. I can see, you know, Jason Scribner, you know, shot seven under on the back nine in, in Abu Dhabi, and that that made a significant leap from the hundred k's worth of prize money to seven hundred k's worth of prize money. It's totally opaque then in terms of that mm. endorsement. How much are they reliant on it, and kind of at what point does it? start to sort of net each other off? Well, I definitely think all players are reliant on, on their endorsement opportunities in whatever capacity. Um, you know, I know obviously the super rich just keep getting richer. So you could argue that they're not as reliant on it, but, mm. and I'll expand on this in just a second, but I think every, every player will, will have a reliance on it. Realistically, the lower ranked you are, the more you need your sponsorship. If we summarize it in mm. priority order, even though every player needs it, the priority is the opposite way around. When you're starting out, that's when you need the cash, not when you're at the top. Uh, so, but uh, there is a tipping point as well because in your early years and as you become established and you become a European or a PGA Tour player and most of your earnings are going to be what you do on the golf course and you're also earning in, in endorsements, there does come a tipping point where your endorsements will start to overtake what you do on on-course earnings. Um, you know, and typically, I mean just based on the information that I probably know, and I'm kind of taking a bit of a stab in the dark, but once you're at that sort of top 10 to maybe top 20 in the world, you're probably reaching that point where you're starting to edge into maybe making more money in endorsements versus on the course, um, roughly. I mean, it depends on the profile of the player. Some players at the top level are quite under the radar and you you know, you might not really talk about them that much, even though they might be 11 in the world. And then there's other guys who are maybe 25 in the world and just take over the media all the time. Mm. Um, so there is, there, it depends on the profile of the player, of course. But I, I can definitely see that um, happening at that stage in their careers. And do you see players come into um, 
certainly newer players that come into to the tour and they're just sort of starting out their careers and and maybe sell their souls a little bit and you think and you look at them thinking oh I wouldn't have done that deal but because you know needs must and they're on the tour and they can't guarantee they're going to make excellent yeah. money do you, do you see that often well uh, I do see it with some players. I can think of a I can think of a handful right now, but I probably shouldn't drop a minute. <laughs> uh, We'd like you to yeah, for I'm our sure. own selfish purposes. Sure you you can uh, <laughs> yeah. do uh, some clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> but they, uh, I, I do think I, I can understand why they would do that. The average tour player who gets their European tour card usually will keep it for three years. Um, so they work their whole life for a three-year window, basically. Mm. So I can certainly understand why they would try and max out as best they can when they do reach the cutting edge. Um, but equally, some players will have a different view of themselves and they won't look at themselves exclusively as, as a product. They'll start to look at themselves as a brand. And this actually ties in quite nicely to a, it's not a new type of sponsorship deal, but it's, a, it's becoming more popular. Um, so typically an endorsement deal is right. You get paid a base retainer. There might be some performance clauses included in your deal. You get paid X amount of money over the lifetime of that deal. Call it three, four, five years, whatever it is, job done, contract expires, no more money from that company. What's happening now is, uh, equity share deals. Are you, are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. No. Yeah. We're starting to see, I mean, this is really more at the top, top level. So guys like LeBron James would do this or some musicians that are on like, super wealthy people. Uh, David Beckham is known to do this as well on a couple of different projects. But Equishare basically means rather than being paid to endorse that product, you become a shareholder for life or until you choose to sell it. Mm. So those deals might include, might include an upfront payment to the player in order for them to sign. And then they would then take in shares of the company. And in uh, recognition of that, they obviously market that to their audience. Da, 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 and then that business grows and stimulates because you're a shareholder. So it's kind of like box office splits that you get with actors, for instance. Like when they, they don't take a fee. They just take 10% of box office, whatever. You got it. Exactly, exactly that. Um, and that's now becoming uh, a lot more common uh, at the moment. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds over the next 10 years, because I think in the wake of this pandemic, there's probably going to be quite a lot of startup companies, and there's probably going to be a fair few that will actually end up doing really well. And what they may need is because this is actually, I'm getting into something actually that's quite intrinsic that I've been researching a lot the last couple of weeks. Um, but what you're going to find is as these companies emerge, they're really going to need to amplify the audience in a big way to take it from one level to the next. And if they're going into, you know, IPOs and things like that, having the backing of like a Rory McIlroy or a LeBron James as part of your shareholding is a really powerful place to drive up the price at the point of IPO. Um, so all of that is super. I, I don't want to like confuse everybody on this no, conversation. You just, you just reminded uh, me of Golf Pass. I was just yeah. thinking Golf Pass all day. Right. Yeah, but that's a huge example, though, yeah, isn't it? Is like, that. if you look at Golf Pass, like, what is that without that without the backing there of Rory? Well, it, it you know, yeah. And outside looking in, not not involved in the marketing of that, but you know, it loses a certain je ne sais quoi, doesn't it? I think without <laughs> it does without him there. Yeah. Um, just to jump on one thing you said there, that um, that it's interesting that, that you mentioned. I don't know. I'm conscious of taking a lot of your time up, so Ooh, um, I'll make it short and sharp. But you mentioned performance clauses. Um, how cutthroat are companies in saying if you drop out of the 100 top 100, this happens? 
Um, I wouldn't say that they would be cutthroat. I think everybody understands where they are in the world, to be fair. So no one, I think, gets emotional about those types of things. But when I'm referencing performance bonuses, I could be talking about winning a tournament. You know, winning a major would be worth a different amount than winning a WGC versus Rolex versus regular European tour event. Uh, then you can have like top five positions or end of year order of merit positions. If you're in the top 10, it's X amount. If it's top 20, it's X amount and so mm. on and so forth. Now, one reason why some companies really like insurance bonuses is because it's insurable. Um, so the risk is actually fairly minimal-ish to a degree, but also can generate amazing ROIs. So I'll give you an example. and uh, We'll just use easy numbers just for reference. So if you took out an insurance policy for a thousand pounds for X player to win a tournament um, and the payout should that person win is 10 grand, what you can do is you can incentivize it in both directions. So in the contract, you might say the performance bonus, should you win this tournament is 5,000 pounds. So they've spent a thousand pounds for the policy. They win, then they get 5,000 back and the player gets 5,000. So That's everyone insane. wins. It's kind yeah. of like just gambling on your player, isn't it, really? Kind of. I mean, kind of, not, not everybody will do that, by the way. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's definitely, uh, it is definitely possible to, to, to be creative in terms of insurance yeah. policies in that way. Uh, and that's what players, like if I was a developing player now, and this is some of the stuff that I suppose I'm, if I'm being honest, I'm learning about um, right now uh, in conjunction with uh, McLaren Sport and CF Sport. I've got this amazing call with these guys that do all these, this research uh, on the data and they provide the data back to insurance companies and you know, analyze risk in, in performances, et cetera. And um, th- there's, there's no doubt that if I was a young player, I'd be seriously considering that. So you could speak to Billy Big Boy at the golf club and you could say <laughs> – Let's do an insurance policy. I'll back myself because I think I'm a good player. I'll back myself. You pay for these insurance policies. We'll split the profits. Yeah. yeah. Why, why Just not? add a bit more leverage. Why not? Like, I mean, it's a yeah. bit more excitement as well in yeah. there, isn't it? I mean, I'm being very, I'm being quite simplistic, but yeah, you see the point. It, yeah. It's also, going back to my previous point, it's an easier proof of return, isn't it, than than just saying stick your insurance company on my hat and we'll see what happens. You know, if they yeah. ta- tangibly get in and split the winnings and yeah, it's definitely easier. Yeah, that's right. So I just think it's quite, quite an interesting way to do it because it's not, this is where, it, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure this out if, what I'm about to say. So I could be way off the mark and hopefully somebody doesn't pick up on this and go, well, hang on, I need to sue him because he's <laughs> off the mark there. But um, uh, you know, if you think about what betting is, you know, anybody would go along and place a bet and, and, and that's what would happen. This is a little bit different because this is a lot more about a calculated uh, risk element you're insuring. You know, it's part of a sponsorship agreement. You know, this is much, much more different. But mm. because it's not associated to gambling and it's not betting per se, um, you know, this is a business arrangement. Therefore, the business will, is more likely to actually make the payment. Whereas you can't ask the CEO of whatever Billy Big Boy company and say, hey, listen, do you want to place a bet for a thousand pounds for a ten thousand return? You're just not going to do that, are you? Um, yeah. So this would fall. It just helps you structure it in a way, doesn't it? That you, That's right. You know, just to maximize the outcome that I think you're going for. Um, exactly that. Exactly that. And, and I think that's quite valuable for young players who are trying to find their way. I mean, at the elite level, it's different. A lot of these big brands that are, you know, like your, your Taylor Mades, your Adidas, you know, Callaway, for, you know, there will be some contracts that they'll probably insure, but largely they'll self insure. They'll have enough data, and I know this from firsthand experience, they'll have enough data and information to know 
how much they're likely to spend in bonuses for the following year. So they'll just keep the money to one side in the bank. And then as they unfold and they'll pay out the bonuses accordingly. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask about as well, Daryl, you kind of, in the, in the world of business where the market is opaque, you have intermediaries to act, don't you? That's the, the crux of the business. And, and, you know, in a world of ambiguous marketing arrangements and sponsorships and all the stuff we've just spent the last sort of 45, 50 minutes discussing, you kind of, you're there to help maybe decode some of that stuff out there. How easy is it? How transparent is it for businesses to understand the value of a player or a person in the golfing or sports industry and their value within that? Am I right in thinking you guys did a bit of work in terms of ranking and impact and presence and all that sort of stuff fairly recently? Um, yeah, we always like to know where our players are, what they're doing well at, what they're not doing well at, and, and then being able to create the narrative that, that uh, will help a brand. Because um, we don't, we never, you know, we're quite key about, you know, we understand that in certain parts of sports management, for example, it can be murky, especially in the world of, say, football. Um, you know, it's very murky. It's called a dirty business in, in certain places. We, when I set this up and, you know, speaking to Jez, you know, one of my, one of my um, business partners who is, he's on the board of the English Football League. So he knows all about the dirty money of football, really. And, and listening to him and being exposed to that and understanding it, you know, one of our key things was 100% transparency. Never lie. Never, never be dishonest. Always help. Uh, if you're helping, you'll always win in the end anyway. So for us, we do like to make sure that whatever we're saying, we can back up with enough evidence to be able to prove what we're saying. And we'd never say anything that would mislead anybody. That's super important. You know, the golf in particular is a small industry. You tend to know everyone uh, and, you, and you have access to everyone. Even if you might not know that individual person, uh, you will have access um, from, what's that, one they have a phrase six isn't it and stuff you're right though like we're even learning that i think in the short time we're you know kind of doing this stuff over last year yeah it is a small industry that's heavily connected through small numbers of people so it's it's not worth your reputation to mislead and to be honest i don't think i could sleep at night you know i've always been a guy yeah and trotty will probably attest to this and i've got myself into way more hot water than i ever should have but i'm quite outspoken probably because i'm from south africa and i should be robbing cars for a living but because i'm because i'm south african i'm quite blunt i'm quite direct and i just say it as i see it sometimes and especially when i was in regular employment and i worked for somebody else that didn't always go down very well yeah, uh, uh, so i've learned the hard way about that and i've definitely learned some hard lessons but uh, that's why I just feel like it's just not worth the effort to, to really get into confrontational environments like that anymore. But that's going back to your point, you know, in terms of analysis and research and data. Yeah, we do look at this. We want to know average views. We want to know, um, you know, media valuations of certain posts, et cetera, et cetera. And it's funny. We're just entering into an agreement now with a company called Zoom. You guys should check this out. Zoom do um, uh, and social media specific analytics, but they do it in the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and uh, we're basically going to bring them over here to do whatever they need to do on this side of the, of the pond. Um, but for us, just being able to use their software to be able to specifically analyze media valuations for social media is powerful for us. Mm. And it comes back to what you said earlier, Tom, where we can then go back and give a report back to those brands and actually showcase the ROI from a social media standpoint. Now, 
these analytics are around like they're very accessible i'm not the only one that's going to say this and any agent or player manager that listens to this podcast will know oh yeah that's nothing new um but what is it what, what what is known is how expensive they are to access um, yeah. and that is kind of a big burden when you may be dealing with low ranking players because the price of those things is is, is um it's not worth buying based on the sponsorship that's being negotiated mm. Mm. I'm not sure if I've answered a question there. I don't even know. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think you have. I think you have. And, and you've been very giving of your time. And I've got one more one more parting gift that I think you can give our listeners. So, you know, a lot of people out there that listen to this will have their own social media profiles. They'll have their own. Some of them are trying to build communities around what they do online linked to golf. And it doesn't have to be selling a product. It could be anything, right? But, you know, you see a lot of entrepreneurial people out there, I think, in the golfing world. And it feels like a really vibrant place at the moment. And, you know, just in terms of how you see people kind of setting up these different things and the pandemic again, you know, probably one of the benefits of that. What would be one of the sort of single biggest advice you could probably give to people who are looking at building, whether they're in the business of content creation or um, whatever it might be for how they market themselves better? You must have a mailing list. There you go. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you why. Uh, Because you can have a more intimate relationship with the people that are following you if you have a mailing list. Um, And we're doing quite a lot of work on this at the moment with our players and just getting a whole bunch of things lined up for this. But I'm going to give you something really tangible. And I really, really wish that every single social influence in the world is listening to what I'm about to say because maybe it might help them actually uh, benchmark their pricing. Uh, But when you do an Instagram social media post, the value of a view is four pence. That's what it is. The value of a sponsored post on a mailing list is one pound and two pence. Wow. Surely you should have a mailing list. (laughs) Mm. That's incredible when you put it that way. That's maths I can't even do. (laughs) that's a lot more (laughs) that's most maths that you can't do tom to be fair you just stick to editing young man no that's i mean that's that's a huge difference isn't it but yeah is it not that's the intimacy isn't it that's the the intimacy intimacy. i I would assume that i mean as a person who gets peppered with spam in his inbox and no matter what i do it still tends to arrive uh a concern i would have about mailing list is that am i starting to to piss these people off. Is that not something that sort of happens? Yeah, well, everything that we would aim for has to have a value message attached to it. So there has to be a lot of value that you're giving. So just give it, just give the information, give the knowledge, give, uh, you know, even like on our mailing list, our, our top section is a tip about sponsorship. So I'll just tell somebody about how that works or marketing or whatever it might be and try and make it as tangible and relatable to the person viewing it. Lower down, every, every week somebody asks me a question, so we put a question in there and I answer their question for them. Then there'll be stuff linked to totally other sports or within golf, and we have a new section that directs people to those platforms mm. so they can learn about what's happening in the business of sport. Um, amongst that will be a dedicated section that says this post is sponsored by, and it could be, you know, it could be whoever it might be. Uh, and that then allows the opportunity for them to actually engage with that post because they've already engaged mm. with the rest of the content. Um, and and yeah. they, they're, they, they're reading it more intently. So, so long as your email isn't, Hey, I've got a is new offer. Is yeah. this? Yeah. Mm. You know, give your time, get, do some value. Uh, and I appreciate for tour players, it's actually quite difficult to do. Social influences is much easier to do. Um, but, um, 
you know, like even down to say Chris Ryan's mailing list, for example, he has a section there that he says, right, hey guys, this is what I'm up to. You know, there's obviously lockdown, it's emotional, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Then we'll have uh, his latest YouTube video in there. There'll be a section, a screen, some screen grab stuff related to some tips he's given on Instagram. Uh, he has a section in there to fill out his survey so that we can keep well, he keeps learning about his content that he needs to deliver, but we learn more about the audience and, and their behaviors, their buying behaviors, uh, so that we're able to pitch the sponsors in the right way. Oh, and there's also a sponsored post for TaylorMade or Golf yeah. Buddy or, you know, MapA or Elegant Golf, whatever, whatever it may be that'll go into that section, which helps what, engagement. What I think is, is, is the case across all social media platforms is that ultimately, if you want to grow and you want to grow organically and you want to, you have to provide quality informative content and that's the crux of it because it's not easy to do all the time yeah. well, it's really hard to just chris, keep giving content isn't it you're so right you are so right and chris is chris said it best to me one day and when he said i thought you know yeah you're right there it, if you look at youtube in particular as a platform there's only two reasons just two reasons and two reasons only to go onto youtube one is to learn something like, you know, how to put down the pram because you haven't figured it out and it's annoying. Or you. hear about the history of Kilspindy Golf Club. Yeah, all that sounded like a sponsored post to me. <laughs> no, no, crikey. I'd never, I would never sandwich self-promotion material into this podcast. <laughs> Naked commercialism, right? There. You wash your mouth out with soap and water, young man. <laughs> That's going to cost you. <laughs> um, but yeah, they'll, they'll go onto social media to learn something or they go onto, onto YouTube to uh, be entertained, whether it be to laugh or, you know, to whatever it might be with some of the YouTube chat. That's it. There's only two reasons. Yeah. I watch our tour film. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. You were disgusting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so long as you're providing value on those two points, great. Rick Shields is 100% in the entertainment camp. Yeah. Everything he does is entertainment. Everything Chris Ryan does is in the education camp. Neither is neither is wrong. You've just you just know where your lane is, and you've done that. Yeah. Um, going on to to pitch out different businesses in, in inauthentic ways is not a very good way to do this. Um, uh, so coming on to your point, so long as the content meets one of those two criteria, you can't make bad content. And I think on that bombshell, I think that is an absolutely brilliant time to say <laughs> thank you, Daryl. You have been phenomenal guest extremely informative sam's been writing everything down we're going to be a social media empire by the end of this so <laughs> daryl thank you very much for... <laughs> thank you very much for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure and uh wish you all the best in the future yeah thanks for having me guys i've really enjoyed it and uh let's do it again sometime Sounds yeah absolutely good. cheers mate cheers Watch fellas this